Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 63 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. This is our first regular episode of our fourth season GCP 2022 and you may have heard already the GCP live episode we released a few days ago that was recorded on Tuesday 8th of March at the Seeker International Conference. If you haven't yet heard it, then please do make some time to give that a listen. It should be in your podcast feed if you are subscribed. And it is something a bit different from our usual episodes. A bit of fun. Eight guests, uh, some captive owners, some prospective captive owners, some big industry names and some captive trivia in there as well. As ever, you can find GCP on any podcast app or platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Just search for Global Captive Podcast and hit subscribe or follow to make sure every latest episode is downloaded straight to your device. But I am back now in London uh, after a week or so in Tucson, Arizona, and New York, and we did record a lot of great content on that trip to be released over the coming weeks and months. In the second half of this episode, we will be joined briefly by Dan Toll, president of Seeker, to reflect on this year's return to an in-person conference. Shortly, you will also hear our captive owner interview, which is one I am very, very excited about and, and been in the planning for quite some time. It is a discussion with Microsoft's Stephanie Lampy, senior risk manager and director and officer of the computing giant's captive insurance companies, and Anthony Trapea global health benefits manager at Microsoft. Well, more on that later, but first, joining as our guest co-host and a GCP debut is Elke Vagenender, Global Head of Multinational at AIG here in London. Elke, welcome onto the pod. Thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. Good. Really, really pleased to have you here. We've been talking about this for, for quite some time to get you on, so we're delighted to have, and the first AIG on the pod as well, I believe, so really, really happy to, to have you on. You have been involved in, in the larger cap and, and financial lines space in particular for a while, Elka. But for listeners who may not be familiar with you, could you perhaps begin by telling us a little bit about your background and, and the role that you've had at AIG for the past year? Sure. So actually, Richard, I started my career as a client. Yeah. And so I worked for quite a few large multinational companies such as BP and Siemens. And it was actually at BP where I first worked closely with a captive and, and where I witnessed firsthand the important role that captives play as, as you know, in risk management. And then later I moved on to underwriting financial institutions. And then from there I managed large portfolios of complex risks. So, so I guess the common theme here is large and complex risks with a global footprint. So, and, and that is what I do today at AIG. So I, I manage overall uh, AIG's multinational offering. So that is both from a risk managed and a risk transfer perspective. Fantastic, and yeah, those two those two clients you mentioned there are two of two of the most uh, kind of sophisticated or largest captives owners uh, in the world. And we have had um, Holger Kraus from Siemens on the podcast a number of times uh, in the past. As you kind of mentioned there, AIG has quite a number of unique touch points with captives. Um, obviously, we know that there's a, there's a captive management division in the US and Bermuda. You, of course, have a large fronting operation. Can you just talk us through some of those different areas that you work with captives? Sure, and and yeah, you're right. Um, so. 
captives are a really important part of, of what we do. And if, if you look back in time for multinational, captives were actually one of what I would call the founding members of, of AIG multinational. Um, and I say that because, because one of our first and largest captive units was actually based in Bermuda and it still is today. So we still produce a large book of business from, from Bermuda, as, as to say. And then there's also, as you mentioned, in Bermuda, the team that is dedicated to uh, servicing captive clients, right? And and they've been doing that since 62, 1962. Wow. And, and, you know, to give you a bit more context there, the, the Bermuda team, um, they move nearly two and a half billion in captive premiums and, and they cash call on average, 14,000 claims per month. So that, that's like in excess of 100 million in claims payments. So, you know, they've, they have high quality uh, standards, as, as, as you, will, you will be aware. So I think if you look at it a little bit broader within, within AIG, I would sort of say that our captive approach is a collaborative one, right? And, and why do I say that? Well, we have really a deal team culture. So we're actually bringing together the underwriters, actuaries, lawyers, accountants, credit officers, and the operational specialists, right? So they're all part of a dedicated captive client team that is that is really operating on a, on a, on a global basis. So, and, and they get involved in, in, in all sorts of um, things, right? So it's going from assessing the credit risk, to looking at collateral requirements, to um, agreeing the fronting agreements between the captive and, and AIG. And in fact, I would I would say they are pretty much behaving like any other underwriter. So they, they actually do have underwriting authority. And as you say, we also manage uh, captives. You know, we have those those experts in Vermont and Bermuda that offer the full range of, of, of suites, really. I would I would just add, we even have our own segregated accounts company that, that, that is really working overtime at the moment, as you will know, the interest in cell captives is really taken off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all over the world as well, we're seeing uh, segregated account companies, protected cell companies, ICCs, all being used in different jurisdictions. And I love your uh, example there about the kind of 14,000 claims a month going through your team in Bermuda because something we don't talk often enough about in on the Global Captive podcast is is claims and captives playing claims and that's the whole reason they're there they're there and it's something we're going to try and address this year because we just don't talk about that side of it which is obviously imperative to the whole captive model. Um, AIG huge uh, presence in the international uh, program space uh, many many of our captain guests we've had on have AIG involved in some part of their international program what do you think the the primary challenges are with international programs currently we know they're getting bigger have have these changed these challenges changed as captives have become more involved over the past two years specifically in taking more risk yeah, yeah I, I'm glad you used the word challenges mm. um, you know so, so look there, there is no hiding behind the fact that multinational programs are complex, right? Even if you think about the most simple risk transfer structures, they can present local challenges, right? Like the requirement for for sanction documentation or, or local rate filing requirements, right? So it's if you're unfamiliar with, with the multinational world, 
it can be a bit difficult to comprehend why you need that level of expertise and experience, right? But but if you add then captives into the mix of this, we, we have an, a whole other element of, 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 of things to consider, such as compulsory or state reinsurance, taxes, right? And then captive clients um, are often very keen to manuscript wordings, right? As they tailor coverage to specific needs of, of, of the parent. And, and the filing and the review of that can be can be a lengthy process. And I haven't even spoken about money movement or, or, or foreign exchange risk. But, 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 you know, you mentioned a good point there, Richard, and that is claims, right? I mean, it's one thing if you have filing issues, but, but if you have gaps in coverage because of regulatory issues or because of other issues you're unaware of, and you may not be able to pay that loss locally. That I think really goes goes to the heart of what we're trying to do, right? So I agree with you. Challenges, but I would say you know it's it's been mentioned on a lot of your podcasts before. I think, and, and maybe I'm going to be repetitive here, but but it's two things that are critical: choosing the right fronting partner with the experience, but also that that collaboration, that upfront preparation between client broker and insurance and really see that as a partnership I think what what I've seen that is that is absolutely critical well yes that collaboration between all parties uh, is certainly critical in in many aspects of captives and the management of programs where a captive is involved and Elka will be back with you in the second half to discuss uh, among other things new lines of insurance going through captives DNO in particular uh, bearing in mind your background in that line of insurance but now let's take a listen to our first captive owner interview of the new season I was very happy to be joined by Stephanie Lampy, Senior Risk Manager at Microsoft and Director and Officer of their captive insurance companies and Anthony Trapea Global Health Benefits Manager at Microsoft. The duo discuss extensively how they work together, particularly on the benefit side, going back to that collaboration we were talking about with Elka earlier, to ensure the program is working smoothly and integrated effectively into the captives. But Stephanie begins by telling us about her role and background at the computing giant. Sure. I started out in the actual actuarial science realm for pensions and had some roles in personal lines and healthcare before I joined Microsoft 14 years ago. At Microsoft right now, I'm the senior risk manager in the business risk and insurance team, which is part of our global treasury and financial services organization. Throughout my 14 years, I've been in treasury and have had various roles in business risk and credit risk. And since 2016, amongst other duties, I have been responsible for managing the Microsoft captive insurance companies. Fantastic. Thank you, Stephanie. Great to, great to finally have you on the pod. We've been discussing this for, for quite a while. Uh, and Anthony, can you perhaps tell us a little bit about your background and your role at Microsoft today? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I look after our global healthcare and risk benefits strategies, including the captive. Um, and I serve as the HR lead on the underwriting committee. I just recently joined Microsoft last summer. Uh, I spent the last 10 years uh, at GSK, which is another large multinational company. And my background is in international benefit strategy and governance. Fantastic. Well, as I said, it's really, really great to have you both onto uh, the Global Captive podcast. And there's, there's lots 
I want us to try and cover in our time. Um, Stephanie, I think a really good place to start uh, to give our listeners uh, some context of kind of the, the Microsoft um, risk financing and, and captive strategy. What are the captives that you have in place today and, and how long have they been established? Yeah, we have a long history at Microsoft of utilizing captives and we have three captives in place. Our oldest captive is Orcus Limited, which is domiciled in Bermuda. Um, in 1998, um, closely followed by Fidalgo Insurance Company, which is domiciled in Vermont in 2000. And then finally, we have Cypress Insurance Company, domiciled in Arizona in 2008. So a pretty in-depth use of captives at Microsoft. Yeah, we, we hear so often about um, particularly large multinationals having uh, a multi-captive strategy and, and so it's good to see uh, those strategies still in place. What, what role do the captives play in your overall approach to, to risk financing strategy and, and what kind of lines do they write? Sure. Our captives have really played a variety of roles in the Microsoft risk financing strategy over time. We've utilized them for a variety of insurance lines, whether we retain risk or um, obtain reinsurance. So we've kind of used them that general way. We've also really used the captives creatively, I think, as incubators for new lines of business. And for example, we utilize them to grow experience for a cyber insurance program where there wasn't necessarily coverage available in the commercial market, but by bringing it into the captive and utilizing it to gain the underwriting experience really enabled us to bring coverage to the commercial market. So a lot of creative uses um, is a benefit to Microsoft. While we do manage lines of business like property insurance through the captive right now, the largest portion of our business we support is by far the employee benefits space. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll come on to EB now, but it's interesting you mentioned uh, cyber there as a good example of cyber, uh, of incubating risk because it's such a hot topic at the moment. We we hear that, that cyber is going through captives more and more uh, as, as the commercial market is so challenging. So it's really interesting to hear Microsoft have been going down that route for a while. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the employee benefits, um, and I'm really pleased we've got both you and Anthony on together so we can kind of talk about that kind of dual approach to it. But Stephanie, when and why did did Microsoft start writing employee benefits through the captive? So in 2010, we started utilizing the captive for employee benefits. And initially, I think the driver was the cost savings, the financial benefits. When we completed the financial analysis, we saw that there was an opportunity for Microsoft to more effectively use its funds. So after we started writing the employee benefits, we also had the added benefit of diversifying the risks in our captive. So in 2010, we started with long-term disability for U.S. employees, and in 2012, we expanded to life and accidental death and dismemberment for U.S. employees. And then we also, in 2012, started reinsuring international employee benefits. And that was a much bigger project. We had to have a really thoughtful approach to how we moved countries into our program in waves, given the broad scope and work involved at a country level. The financial modeling was really important when we started writing the employee benefits. And then as we continue to evolve the program, the flexibility and creativity that the captives enable has become more important as we try to maximize employee experience by utilizing our risk financing. 
Yeah, it certainly sounds like a long journey to, to get to where you currently are and rolling in all those different markets um, with the domestic side, which obviously creates its own challenges regarding ERISA, which I know you guys have been through, uh, and then obviously adding all those countries in as well. Sounds like a pretty ambitious program. Anthony, employee benefits is obviously a, a big growing area for captives. It, it can be quite administrative heavy. You've got obviously experience in your previous role regarding employee benefits in the captive, and now you're in charge of it at Microsoft as well. Do you think that administrative burden should put people off, or are those challenges surmountable and, and ultimately worth the effort? I would say I absolutely think the benefits outweigh the challenges. So, uh, as you mentioned, I've worked with captives for a good portion of my career, um, and I view our captive as a vehicle to help drive our employee value proposition. Um, I can tell you from an HR perspective, the, the benefits go far beyond savings. And I think Stephanie nailed that. The increased control over plan design allows us to remove barriers to care and eliminate hindrances to, to medical access in markets where this wouldn't otherwise be possible. I think you know, two good examples are us being able to remove pre-existing condition uh, exclusions, uh, another being able to offer coverage in markets where commercial insurers simply won't write a policy. So. Long answer short is uh, I, I absolutely think the benefits outweigh the challenges. So this is the first time, Anthony, and you know that I've been quite excited about this as we're preparing this interview. This is the first time I've had both kind of the captive slash PNC side on with the the EB side from the same company talking about how they use the captive. And, and I think that's really great for people to hear. So it'd be good for you to outline how important you think it is for you and Stephanie to be working closely together on integrating employee benefits into the captive and you know unlocking those advantages uh, that you mentioned and making sure they're realized sure it, it's extremely important i think a strong partnership with risk and all those involved in the captive really is integral to our success as i've mentioned i've only been here a short while but it's very evident that we have a strong team not only at a central level but our local and regional teams as well i mean they they all play a major part in our captive programs we have a small but mighty underwriting committee. Uh, we have myself, my colleague, Cindy Teft, who looks after our governance of uh, our benefits programs from the HR side. Um, we have Stephanie from the risk side, the captive owner, and we have Granite as our captive consultants. Um, and I, I think I, I've mentioned this to you and Stephanie separately, I, having the support from risk and treasury really allows us to realize all that the captive has to offer. Anthony, I think you hit on the underwriting committee. For me, having that various perspectives come together really helps me and the captive make decisions that are consistent and relevant to employees. So it's really valuable for our, our team and how we manage our captive. And I think the other point I would make is I also really appreciate the focused leadership we have with Anthony, Cindy, and the benefits team. And it really helps our global treasury and financial services team align with the HR benefits to make sure we're putting the resources where they are needed and where they'll have the most impact. Just to add back on to that, I think I joke with Stephanie all the time where I my role or I, the way I see my role with the captive is to extract as much value as possible from the captive and kind of be a thorn in Stephanie's side. But to build on that, I think one of the major pluses that we have is that Stephanie gets it from the partnership aspect and from all that we, we can do with the captive. And she's extremely interested in, in our side of it too. So it's not just like, oh yeah, sure, you, we could do whatever you want with EB. It's more of that we have a strategic partner 
in risk and treasury and Stephanie, and it's uh, quite evident as to what we're able to achieve with the captive. Yeah, it's great to hear that. It's great, always great to hear how uh, the captive is communicated and managed internally within an organization to make sure that the most value is being kind of squeezed out of it or the captive is being used in, in a way that it can provide the most value to the group. I think that's something that we probably don't talk about enough on, on GTP. We definitely used to always have a question along those lines in our first series. But I think it's important for, particularly at the moment where you've got uh, lots of new caps has been formed that risk managers know that how important it is to really get that internal stakeholder buy-in from the beginning and to continue it right and to keep it as the as the captive evolves and, and the captive's uh, role is always going to keep changing over time as, as the company and, and the environment changes so anthony you know in terms of all that structure uh, and collaboration you've talked about there to aid the eb program how has that kind of directly benefited your colleagues at microsoft all around the world. I think it allows us to be agile and support our employees when they need it the most. Uh, I think that this was very evident during the pandemic. Um, we were able to amend our policies and offer creative forms of coverage to help. Um, we found solutions in countries where the healthcare system was uh, overwhelmed or where insurance companies just weren't renewing uh, insurance policies, uh, for example, like life insurance policies. Another perfect example is Microsoft's Health Plus plan. It's a first of its kind supplemental policy, which sits atop our local medical policies and offers coverage in areas which aren't commonly covered. The categories include fertility, gender affirming treatment, neurodiversity care, and on. Uh, I'm extremely proud to be a part of it, and it quite literally wouldn't have been possible without our captive and the amazing team surrounding it. I could go on, uh, but the last example I'll give is our ex gratia process. This process not only helps individual claimants, but highlights potential plan design flaws that we might, we may not have had visibility to otherwise. Uh, I think in sum, the captive allows us to make an impact in near real time when our employees need it the most. And that, that's something that I really enjoy about it. And I really enjoy working with Anthony and the benefits team where you see such compassion and motivation to do what's best for the employee. It's, it's just a wonderful view of Microsoft coming together to support our employees. No, it's really helpful to have those stories and that perspective from you both, because we hear, particularly when we have some of our employee benefits partners, um, service providers on the podcast talking about a lot of the things you talked about in theory, but to hear it in practice and how it does give you the control, it does allow you to do things for Microsoft colleagues that you might not otherwise be able to do with a different structure. I think it's really useful for people to hear. Stephanie, before we wrap up, though, I, it, it isn't really a captive owner interview about me mentioning the H word. Uh, the hard market. What has your experience been of, of this kind of hardening market environment or, or hard market environment over the past two to three years? And has the market conditions impacted or changed at all the way that you've utilized the captives in, in those last couple of years? Good question, Richard. I wouldn't say uh, the insurance market has really had an impact on how we use our captives. I think that it goes more into our renewal strategies and our considerations when we're looking at our policies and our programs. For us, it's great to have the captives available. It gives us an option to be creative in how we finance our insurance programs and our risks. And it's something we continue to consider as an option. Paul. 
all, R&Q has worked with some very high profile captive owners over the past 13 years and the majority of those companies remain owners of sophisticated captives today. I think that demonstrates that transferring legacy liabilities is all part of the natural life cycle of a captive, don't you think? Yes, that's right, Richard. As businesses evolve over time, it makes sense that their insurance needs change and as a result, the profile of the captive and its role within the group will change as well. We have worked with captives owned by companies such as AstraZeneca, General Electric, Lufthansa and Unilever, who all have sophisticated captive operations and felt the need to restructure or shift their priorities. Offloading a legacy captive or a portfolio of liabilities can often be the most efficient way to repurpose a captive or free up much needed capital for distribution or new lines of business. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. Well, I hope you will agree that was a fascinating insight to the workings of one of the largest companies in the world and and their captive operations. And it really comes through how closely the captive and benefits teams work together to ensure the best results for the company and and their own uh, colleagues at Microsoft in terms of the benefits particularly. So while at Seeker last week, I did manage to catch up briefly with Dan Toll, Seeker president, towards the end of the conference so we could review the return to an in-person event. It's been incredible. In fact, I think it's exceeded my expectations. Had I known three months ago that we have about 500 people in attendance, I would have slept a lot better. Very, very happy with the outcome. A lot of late registrants, which created some challenges with getting them into hotel rooms and things like that. But my staff did an amazing job getting folks in. We ended up with about 500 attendees about 100 captive owners, 230 plus first time attendees, which I think is outstanding. And uh, couldn't be happier with the energy that we had kicking off with our keynote speaker who was outstanding. It just carried all through with the high energy. Everyone's so excited to see each other again. Well, yeah, you mentioned that some of the numbers there, which are great. And obviously the captive owners here, that's always, I, I'm particularly keen to see, I see that. But I know I've also bumped into, uh, and one of them's gonna, I've interviewed this week as well, quite a few captive prospects are definitely are definitely knocking about and going meetings with all different regulators. You can kind of see it happen in, in, in live time. Yeah, it's been it's been really incredible. I spoke to uh, one of our members who said that they closed more deals in the first day than they did in the past year and a half. And I just think the traffic's been outstanding. A lot of happy sponsors, exhibitors, and uh, it's, gr- it's great to be back in person. Just to wrap up, you know, r- real big thanks to yourself and the Seeker team. You've been a big supporter of Global Captive Podcast since we started. We we um, pretty much really did kind of soft launch the podcast in 2019 here because I had this room and I did you know, tens and tens of interviews, which set us up for that for that first year. And uh, yeah, really big thank you to you and all your team for for accommodating us. Absolutely. I I really do believe what you're doing and telling the good story about captive insurance. If we could have more captives talk about the valid uses and and how important their captive is to their organization, the industry would be a much better place. So we certainly appreciate all that. If I may, I I think there has been some real genuine interest about ESG. Uh, I brought it up in my opening remarks, and it's come up in a few other conversations. I know you spearheaded that session. Uh, How did it turn out? As as you know, I have to kind of bounce between the different conference rooms and only made about 15 minutes of your session. Yeah, it was great. We put a a great panel together with with your help. Uh, Michael Douglas from Aon, Karen Z from University of California, Frederick Finman from Sandvik, and James Stewart from uh, the Guernsey International 
National Insurance Association. And I thought that gave the panel a really great balance because we had that European perspective. We had the US perspective from Karen and Michael. Uh, Michael had a chance to describe how Aon Seavis been impacting for, for captives. And I thought the most promising part of it was some of the comments from James from Guernsey. He had an opportunity to talk to the other captive associations here during the week. And um, I think there's uh, quite a lot of intrigue being built from, from that presentation. And I think, I think I get the impression, I don't want to speak for them, but I imagine you, you'll hopefully see Guernsey have more of a presence here at Seeker in the future. I think it's a good fit for them. We're happy to have them. Uh, yes, I was part of the, the Calcar Captive Association Leadership Council where he had an opportunity. I think your word intrigue is, is correct. I, I don't want to say interest yet because I think we're all, as your session sort of dictated, are still a little skeptical of what ESG means to captives in the U.S. and whether it's going to come, come through in the same, uh, I guess, importance or level of interest as in Europe. But those things usually do make it across the pond in, in some form or another. So I think there was some, some real interest there. So I think it was a great addition. We're into the final straight now of GCP 63 and Elka Vagalenda of AIG is back with me. Elka, in this challenging commercial market, what new lines have you seen going into captives? We've seen it in two ways, right? So one is, of course, the increased deductibles retentions and, and the other side is then filling the gaps in, in, in coverage, right? And we've seen that particularly in sort of the energy and property space, I think, where capacity has been a bit challenging. So traditional lines are still... I would say they're still the main driver, right? They're, it's where the biggest spend is. Um, so the the GL, the professional liability, the property. And, and look, I, I, I'm not telling you anything new when I say that there's been an interest in new areas such as cyber, right? So I, I think that a lot has been said about that and, and quite understandably giving the profile of the risk. But but we've seen maybe some other areas. Um, trade credit, for instance, right? That is one where uh, we see captives being more utilised as a primary portion of the risk and then, and then the market taking the excess position, right? Um, so that would be an area that, that we've seen. Um, and especially if you have an existing captive, it's easier to add a trade credit program. A lot of clients talk to us about supply chain, um, you know, and, and obviously the disruption that we've seen ar- around the pandemic and, and, and what to do. It's not as easy, I think, because supply chain doesn't quite fit perfectly within, within, a, within a product. But there's definitely stuff that can be helpful there. Where we have seen a big increase is third-party coverages, yeah. right? So um, I, I saw a stat from, I think it was Marsh, um, who were saying, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was something 80 or 20% of, of, of uh, captive owners now have third-party party risks in there. And, and a perfect example where we have seen a, a real significant growth is on the warranty cover, mm. right? Because you can... You know, we've seen that in two ways, really. Um, either extended warranty on appliances, like offering by a retailer, or more importantly, I think the loss or damage protection on gadgets such as, well, I don't think if you can call them gadgets anymore, <laughs> maybe that tells you my age, but but mobile phones, for instance, right? And and this can really, we've seen that create a, a revenue stream for captive owners because Historically, these are low loss ratio businesses, right? So, um, you know, it may be a good opportunity for captives to generate additional revenue there. 
yeah absolutely on the on the on the gadget side we and, and you mentioned marsh yeah we had marsh on the podcast i think it was last year early last year or, or late 2020 uh with a client canon usa and they were talking about how they'd put a cell captive in place simply to write kind of um insurance or, or warranty products on on cameras that they lease out to uh, kind of producers and, and this kind of stuff so um th- that's really an interesting area and on those warranty lines I, I won't mention the exact one but there is a very very famous uh laptop mobile device maker which i'm told that warranty insurance which goes through their captive is the most profitable line of insurance in the world so you can see how this kind of third party risk can really beef up a captive be a profit driver and that profit could be used to maybe capitalize new lines of insurance for the for the parent or, or maybe in dividends back to the company so it's a really interesting area we definitely are seeing a lot more growth in um and i think we'll continue to talk about it a lot on the podcast this year one line you didn't mention there but has got a lot of attention over the past two years and is an area that your uh, particular expertise is in is uh, is dno and we've heard that captives are increasingly writing it um and it's a topic that divides a lot of opinion we've had different captive owner guests on the pod the last two years and, and the views definitely differ as well DNO, whether that's side A, side B and C, or, or all of it can go through a captive. What is your view then on, on captives getting involved with DNO, and, and have you seen many examples of this? Yeah, I, I, I'm well aware that this remains a, a popular topic, Richard, and I think it's, look, it's commonly accepted that um, side B and side C solutions can be can be managed within a captive but but it's also accepted that the side a is where the source of the the many debates are right and it creates some unique challenges in my opinion especially around the the circular circular indemnity caused when when a captive ultimately pays a non-indemnifiable claim there are technical solutions out there how to overcome this and and we have certainly worked on some of these but in my personal opinion, and, and I'll go back to, to the beginning where I sort of said, look, I've worked the first 12 years of my, my career as a client. I've experienced serious company crises and, and, and then consequent DNO claims. And I would actually, from that side, caution the ramifications of getting this wrong are immense, right? And so it is remain it remains largely untested. So if you do consider it, consider whether whether you are comfortable with living with that uncertainty. Now, having said that, the DNO market um, continues to be a challenge, right, uh, for many clients, and and many are continuing to seek those alternative solutions. I think an interesting development to watch was the decision we saw last week in Delaware, right? Mm. So the, the Delaware General Assembly passed an amendment to, to really empower the corporations to use captive insurance companies as an alternative source of management liability insurance, right? And, and that bill is making a lot of noise currently, and we have certainly seen the interest from clients spike as a result. My opinion is, look, I think the, the devil is in the detail, right? And and. I don't believe it's going to be a quick fix um, for for people who are unsatisfied with their coverage uh, that they can they can get in the on a risk transfer basis um, because there are still very high standards that that we have to look at in terms of exclusions or how claims are, are are going to be handled. But but look, 
Richard, I expect this topic will remain very lively and we'll continue to work with, with our clients on, on, on potential solutions. Yeah, that Delaware uh, legislation is really interesting. and I think it's really important to emphasise because obviously Delaware is also a big captive domicile and people can get a bit confused kind of what legislation applies to what. But as far as I understand it, legislation in Delaware is for holding companies who are in Delaware, headquarters in Delaware. We know there are a lot of those um, who have captives anywhere in the world. So it's not just about Delaware captives. It's about Delaware holding codes being able to use a captive, whether that's elsewhere in the United States or, or, or offshore, uh, to, to ensure side A. Um, by the time this comes out, that, that, that legislation may have proceeded even further. But at present, it looks like it is going to be uh, kind of enacted. And I'm, I'm sure you're right. I think if even if the uh, DNO captive debate was starting to die down a little bit, as possibly the market softens a bit or the debate has happened, I think this legislation is just going to kind of throw more fuel on the fire of that debate and it'll be we'll definitely be discussing it more and more this year so as we discussed then elka captives have been moving even more centrally into large programs and, and complex accounts do you think this growth and the bigger part that they're playing is is simply a short-term reaction to the challenging market environment or do you think that this this bigger role this kind of pumped up role is, is here to stay and, and part of a much longer term evolution which will continue to be uh, embraced by risk managers and, and their organizations a captive is not a knee-jerk reaction. It's a commitment that should always, in my view, be part of a long-term risk management strategy, right? Companies that set up a captive need to have a strategic approach to manage risks, exposures, and, and the cost of risks, and, and be willing to share that, that risk, right? To, to, to take their share in that risk. So all I would say is that there is a tendency to still um, have the high frequency claims with with low severity, you know, as the most traditional way of of seeing captives. But we have seen more captives where clients have decided to nearly do away with the traditional insurance market and retain 100% of that risk themselves. So, so yes, the current market conditions have resulted in higher retentions and captives filling holes where capacity is not available. But but I do think that none of this can be easily or readily done by setting up a new captive in a hurry or, or as a real reaction to increased pricing in a short term. So the, 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 those, man, those captives that are managed as a long-term strategy, right? That Those are the ones in our experience that have been, you know, the best managed and, and the best equipped to deal with the, with the market cycles, right? To have vehicles ready and able to deploy when and where you need it, need this. And, and, and that is the most common strategy and, and the most stated advantage really of a captive it is, is to be able to deal with that fluctuation in insurance cycles, right? So I would say it gets a lot of attention from the board. There's real money at stake. It's, it's really about encouraging a strong risk management culture. And so in my opinion, captives are here to stay but it has to be as a long-term strategic vehicle aligned with a strong risk management culture. And that point you make there about there's a lot, there's a lot of money involved. And as we've said you know, numerous times throughout this podcast, more money is going through captives than ever before. And that will gain more and more attention from kind of senior management at the parent organization. There will be higher scrutiny. And if, you know, myself and yourself and all the other great guests we have on this podcast are correct that the captive concept stands up to that scrutiny, then it should be hopefully further embraced. Um, and, and they'll realize just how great a tool it is and, and embraced further. So uh, we look 
look forward to this kind of hopefully uh, this cycle continuing uh, regarding kind of the increased utilization of captives for, for many, many years to come. And that is all we have time for. So uh, Elka, thank you very much for coming on as our guest in this GCP. Well, thank you very much for having me, Richard. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. <laughs>